Was it worth it? When we're talking about making any kind of sacrifice, that's the all-important question that we want to know the answer to. Was it worth what it cost us? What was our return on investment? An investment can be monetary. A kid spends $10 of his birthday money at the general store on a remote control car. Was it worth it? Is he still getting enjoyment from it six months later, or did it conk out after just two days? The sacrifice can be of time or of effort. You spend a whole summer, some of you do, diligently toiling in the garden. Was it worth it? What do you get for your toil? Did you end up with a full pantry with jars of pickles and canned tomatoes and raspberry jam? Or did hornworms and Japanese beetles and mildew leave you with little to show for all of your work? Was it worth it? Then there's relational sacrifice. Bleary-eyed, sleep-deprived, somewhat frantic parents make sacrifices for their children. Adult children, in turn, make sacrifices to care for aging parents. Friends sacrifice relationally for one another, setting aside their preferences to accommodate one another, adjusting their schedules and their agendas to be there for each other. Is it worth it? Is the investment, the sacrifice, worth it? Every time we make a sacrifice, every time we give something up, especially if it's something costly, we do it because we believe, or at least we hope, that there's something even greater that we're going to gain in return for what we've sacrificed. And this is true even for Jesus. Jesus is concerned with the return on his investment. Last week on Palm Sunday, we watched as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And he knew that in a few days he was going to be crucified. And we heard him speak these words about his own death. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What does this mean? Well, it means that Jesus was counting the cost. He was weighing things in the balance. He was thinking about the fact that he was about to sacrifice his life. He was about to undergo the unspeakable pain and agony of the cross. The anguish of being separated from his father, from whom he had never, ever been separated in all the ages. He was about to have the wrath of God come upon his soul. Because of the sins of his people. Is he going to think this is worth it? And then he looked even farther ahead, past the cross, to what would come about as a result of his sacrifice. And he saw a great harvest. A great harvest. And when he looked at his sacrifice, and when he looked at the harvest... He said, ah, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. 
Now, today on Easter Sunday, we're going to celebrate that harvest, which has come about as a result of Jesus' sacrifice. We're going to see, if you will, his return on investment. And we'll see how he has reaped, and even now is reaping, an unimaginably great harvest of life and glory, both for himself and for his people. Because here's the amazingly incredible thing. Jesus is willing that you and I would share in his reward. Jesus is willing that you and I should share and become partakers of his reward. What did we do to deserve that? What does the song say? Why should I gain from his reward? I, who, whose sin put him on the cross... Why should I be the beneficiary of his death? Think of that. He's willing that you should share his reward. He shares his gains gladly with those who used to be his enemies. But hold that thought, because I think that actually, that ought to come later. First, before we get to our sharing in it, I want us first to celebrate the harvest that Jesus reaps for himself. Friend, are you conscious today of the fact that you ought to be happy that Jesus has a great reward? You ought to be happy not just for your participation in it. You ought to be happy for him. You ought to be happy and joyous today in the resurrection that Jesus has been exalted. You should be happy on his behalf. He has earned the reward of his suffering, a great And wonderful harvest. The first thing Jesus receives as the reward of his suffering. And by the way, if you're if you're interested, there's a bulletin insert in your in your program, and that might help you follow along as we go along through the different points. The first thing Jesus receives as the reward of his suffering is resurrection life. Resurrection life. All the other blessings flow from this. See, Jesus died as a sacrifice for sin. He was the Lamb of God who shed his blood to take away the sin of the world. And his death made it possible for sinners like you and like me to be forgiven and restored into fellowship with God. And you know, it was necessary. His sacrifice was necessary for him. It was necessary for him to die. Because your sin and my sin places us under the condemnation of God. God, who is the holy and righteous ruler of this universe. He created us. He created us, and we rebelled against him. And we sin against his holiness every single day. Now, this crime of rebellion has to be paid for. But we have a problem because there's no way that we can possibly pay for it ourselves. Jesus himself describes our sin as being like a debt of a bazillion dollars. We can never, ever repay. No amount of good deeds. If you think that you're going to get to heaven because your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad deeds, that's a folly, friend. No amount of good deeds can balance out our sin in the scales of God's justice. The punishment we deserve for sin is death, and there's only one way to escape it. It's for someone without any sin of his own comes along 
and offers to die in our place and exchanges his life for ours. That's what the Lord Jesus did. He offered up his life. It was necessary that he should do so if sinners were to be saved because the only payment that God will accept for your sin, the only payment he will accept for my sin is the blood of his own sinless son. Jesus had to die if we were going to be saved. He had to die, but he didn't have to stay dead. That's the good news. He didn't have to stay dead. In fact, he couldn't. He couldn't. Listen to what the Apostle Peter told the people of of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. This comes from Acts 2. I won't actually have you turn to many passages today because there's just so many that we're going to look at briefly. But this is from Acts 2, the very first sermon on the birthday of the church. Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. How to win friends and influence people. You killed Jesus, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible for him to be held by it. Why? Because David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. David quoting, or Peter quoting the Psalms. Then he goes on and he interprets that. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's not talking about himself. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So see, friends, it's not possible. It's not possible for Jesus to be held by death. He was the God-man. He was God the Son, made man, the holy and righteous one. It was necessary that he die, but it was necessary also that he rise again. And by the way, Jesus died as the God-man. He rose as the God-man also. Have you thought about that? Even after his resurrection, Jesus remains a human being. A human being like us. Well, Kind of like us. We'll get there. But he's still a human being. It was a real human body that stepped out from the tomb. Glorified, yes, but still human. The tomb was actually empty because his body was gone. He walked with his disciples. He cooked breakfast for them. He sat down with them and ate fish. They were able to see the nail holes in his hands. I believe those nail holes Remain the scars forever visible to his saints in glory. And he says to Thomas, go ahead. Go ahead. 
Put your finger in the holes. Put your finger in the holes. See, this was no phantom, no mere spirit, but it was Jesus, the God-man, the risen Christ. And 40 days later, he ascended to heaven, again, in his human body. Even now, the King of Kings remains a real, live human being. But yes, his life, admittedly, is different. See, our bodies are still part of the first creation. We still, Paul says, bear the image of the man of dust, and our bodies are still subject to decay and eventually to death. But Jesus now lives the life of the new creation. He's the new Adam. God has started something new. His body is glorified and he's the first fruits. We one day will join him and be like him as he is now. His body will never know sickness. His body will never know weakness ever again. Nor temptation. Nor any infirmity. In Romans 6, 9, Paul says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He'll never die again. He ever lives to make intercession for us. But if he ever lives to make intercession, that means he ever lives. And we too will live with him through endless ages by being conformed to the likeness of his glorious body. So friends, on this Easter Sunday, let us be happy for the Lord Jesus. Let us be happy for him. He has the reward of his suffering, the blessing of resurrection, of new creation life. He's also reaped a harvest of glory, of life and of glory. Jesus' death was the culmination of a process of humiliation. On the cross, he was humbled beyond all humiliation. This is a process he willingly chose. In Philippians 2, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be held on to and grasped tightly, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. So him coming down to live among us as a human was already humiliation beyond imagining. But then he goes lower. He goes lower. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, even the most shameful death ever imagined by our cruel human minds. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Because he has humbled himself, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, God has rewarded Jesus with glory. No one is greater. No throne is higher. 
No name is held or will be held in more honor than his. When he ascended into heaven, he is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And the the Lord said to our Lord on that day, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And in this way, Jesus has received his vindication. His vindication. He's been proved through the resurrection from the dead. The Father has placed his seal of approval upon Jesus, his Son, for all time. And in fact, according to the Scriptures, it's the resurrection that finally actually certifies who and what Jesus is. Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, wasn't he already Lord and Christ before he died and rose again? Yes, he was. But in the resurrection, God certifies, this one is Lord, this one is Messiah. Acts 13, What God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled in us their children, by raising Jesus, as it also is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Well, wasn't he already the son? Well, yeah, he's been the son from all ages, but in his role as Messiah King, in his role as the human son of God, he is vindicated and certified that Jesus is the son by the resurrection. In Romans 1.4, it says, God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, it's the resurrection that certifies that Jesus is the Son of God with power. We don't really think about some of these implications of the resurrection very much. The resurrection is the thing that certifies and in one sense makes Jesus to be Lord and Christ and Son. That's how the Father vindicates him. And right now, because Jesus was willing to humble himself to death, the Father has exalted and vindicated him. And Jesus has now the Father's promise... That at the end of the age, one day, every knee, including yours, by the way, every knee will bow before Jesus. And every tongue, including yours, will confess him to be Lord. So friends... Let us be happy for the Lord Jesus. He has the reward of his suffering, the blessing of glory. He's also received the reward of a kingdom. Long ago, the father promised that his son would have a kingdom. David received God's promise that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and God would take him to be his son and establish his kingdom forever. The prophet Daniel received a vision. He saw the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And Daniel sees this guy, this Son of Man, come up to the Ancient of Days, God, and be presented before him. And it says, to him, to the Son, 
was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Again, in Psalm 2, God says of his son, the Messiah, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What did we just see? That that's happened at the resurrection. Ask of me. Ask of me, son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And all these promises were fulfilled when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Tim read these verses for us earlier, right? What does he say to the disciples after his resurrection, before he ascends to heaven? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority already given to me. Go, therefore, and work that out, in other words. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. On the basis of the fact that I have all authority, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Jesus right now has the kingdom. He has all authority. But it's being worked out as his gospel spreads throughout the world. And so right now, in heaven, Jesus, exalted, sitting next to his Father on the throne, is saying, Father, you promised. Father, you gave me a promise. Give me the nations as my inheritance. And the Father gladly says, yes, I'm giving them to you. The Father is continually granting Jesus' request. How do we know? What is happening every single day? Men and women, boys and girls, are going out at his command and proclaiming the gospel throughout the world. And more and more and more people from all the nations are coming under Jesus' dominion. His kingdom comes. His kingdom expands. This This, by the way, is all the more reason why we should be concerned, friends, with missions and of the spread of the gospel here in northern Vermont, where we can do it directly, and also around the world, where we can support it being done. Not only, not only, we tend to think of it so that men and women, boys and girls, may be saved and have eternal life. Yes, 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 but also... Also, so that Jesus may receive his inheritance. We want Jesus to get his reward. There's a tradition that back in the 1700s, there were two young Moravian men, maybe early 20s, sold themselves into slavery in the West Indies because it was the only way that they would be allowed access to those who were enslaved on the plantations there so that they could tell them about Jesus. Because the plantation owners wouldn't allow anybody to come and talk to the slaves about the Lord. So they willingly decided to sell themselves into slavery so they could do this. And as their ship that would carry them across the Atlantic left the dock, they called out to the family and the friends that they were leaving behind. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Yes, that's right. Every time another sinner comes to faith, Jesus is receiving the reward of his suffering. 
Friends, let us be happy for the Lord Jesus. He has the reward of his suffering, the blessing of an inheritance and a kingdom which will have no end and which currently today is is being extended and expanded. Then also, through his death and resurrection, Jesus has won for himself a glorious bride. You know those stories about a prince who goes through fire and death to, to defeat the dragon and rescue the princess? There's a reason, I think, that such stories resonate with us. It's because they remind us of this most glorious story. The church, the church is Jesus' bride, his precious people whom he bought with his own blood. And Ephesians says he loved her and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her by the washing of water with the word so that he might one day present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle Or any such thing so that she might be holy and without blemish. So what is Jesus doing right now? He's working day and night to make her holy. To make her beautiful. And if you are one of his people, if you're part of his church, then he is working day and night to make you holy. To make you beautiful. The process is taking a while, to be sure. But it will be completed at last. And then he will come for her and take her to be with him forever. And then the herald from Revelation will call out, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And on that day, When he's united to his bride, Jesus will have fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. But even now, while he's waiting for her, his joy is inexpressible. He has done the Father's will. He has obeyed by humbling himself to the death of the cross. And now his sufferings are over. And he is risen to glorious life and exalted and richly rewarded and waiting the day when his exaltation is complete and all his enemies are under his feet and he leads his loved ones to be with him forever. All this because of the resurrection. Friends, let us be happy for the Lord Jesus. He has the reward of his suffering Isaiah 53, which we read on Good Friday, says like this, If he will render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. 
and be satisfied. He's satisfied. Was it worth it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Jesus considers that it was all worth it. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there because Jesus' harvest is not just for himself. His resurrection secures all the blessings for himself, but it also secures his blessings for his people. He's not content that he alone should know this joy. He wants to share this joy with his bride. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? What husband does not want to enrich his bride and bring her joy? So does Jesus. You know, in the old marriage ceremony, maybe some of you had this in your marriage ceremony, the groom, as part of his vows, says, and with all my worldly goods, I thee endow. With all my worldly goods, I thee endow. So Jesus, having gathered in, having gathered in a harvest of blessing, delights to endow his people with all of his goods. So let's now tack and consider the harvest of life and glory that Jesus has secured for his people through his death and resurrection. First off, he he gained life for himself. He bestows upon us his resurrection life. Now at the moment, we experience his resurrection life differently than he does. Some of you, like me, it's it's not true of our bodies yet, is it? Some of you, like me, can do the strenuous exercise of getting out of bed and throw our backs out for three weeks, right? So so we don't experience his resurrection life in our bodies yet, but we experience them already in our spirits. He has the life of the new creation filling his spirit and his body. We have it filling our spirit already, and we really do have it. We have new creation life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, he's a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. If you're in Jesus, you are part of the new creation, even now. You don't belong to the old world that is passing away. You have Jesus' new life at work in you. Because as Ephesians 2 tells us, Even though we formerly were dead in trespasses and sins, God, being rich in mercy, what did he do? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. By grace you have been saved and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Already already raised to new life, already in some sense seated with him spiritually and the heavenly places. So just as Jesus was raised, so we too are raised already to new spiritual life. We signify that in our baptism, don't we? Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. So when we at Redeeming Grace 
baptize someone, it's our custom to say, as the new believer goes down into the water and comes out again, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. By faith, we share in Jesus' death. In some measure, we already share in his resurrection. How is that new resurrection life evidenced? Chiefly, mostly, it's by the power of sin being broken in our lives. See, when we were part of the old creation, when we were still the old man, before we had died and been raised with Christ, the power of sin reigned in our lives. The power of sin reigned in our bodies. We could not break free of it. But now, having been joined to him in his death and resurrection, our new creation life is one of freedom from the sin that formerly kept us in bondage. So here's the logic that Paul plays out as he goes, continues in Romans 6. He says, if we've been united him with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we're joined with him this way, we're going to be joined to him this way. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's why we're united with him in his death, that we might have that bond of sin broken. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And don't go on presenting your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin will have no dominion over you. Believer, that is his promise to you. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. We are no longer enslaved to the power of our sin because we have died and been raised with Christ. To what did Jesus die? He died to sin. So do his people. We have died with him. And the one who's died is set free from sin. What kind of life does Jesus have? He lives to God. So do his people. See, brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus defeated sin by his death. Sin has no claim on him, and so it must be with us. And so it is with us. Sin does not have dominion over us. We are free not to serve sin the way we used to, but to serve God. We're free to serve God and to use our bodies for righteousness. We didn't have that power before. And this is the life of the new creation that God has, that Jesus has won for us. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead means this for you. If you're in Christ, you don't live in slavery anymore. 
This is the promise for you who aren't in Christ. If you join yourself to him, that means you don't have to live in slavery for one more minute. You can know freedom. So brothers and sisters, let's be happy for ourselves. We share the fruit of Jesus' suffering, the life of the new creation, and freedom from the power of sin. Another blessing his resurrection secures is the hope of glory. You know, I look at you, you look at me, we don't look especially particularly glorious. Don't get me wrong, you look lovely. But I wouldn't quite say glorious. Not the way Jesus is right now. When John sees a vision of the risen Jesus, he's so wonderfully glorious that John falls at his feet as if dead. C.S. Lewis says if that we were to see one another the way that we one day will see, we'd be, we'd be tempted to fall down and worship. That's how glorious we're going to be one day. We don't share that with Jesus quite yet. But brothers and sisters, we will one day. We will one day. Christ in you is what? The hope of glory. And in hope, which is not like the world's hope, like I hope it won't rain tomorrow. We have no idea whether it will or not. We just hope it will. That's not biblical hope. Hope is fixed on the promises of God. It's sure. It's certain. In hope we await our Savior who, in Philippians 3 says, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Our bodies will one day be like his glorious body. And when the Lord returns, beloved, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will behold him and we will be like him. We will bear the image of the man from heaven. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, speaking of the glory, that's how it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, what is sown into the ground, meaning our physical bodies when they die and return to the dust, what is sown is perishable. What's raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. You know, we don't know much about that glorious resurrection body that we will one day have. But isn't it enough to know that we will be like Jesus? And our new bodies will be custom made, fit to inherit the kingdom of God. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? See, friends, our Savior has defeated sin and death. That means that we have the promise that we will one day put them behind us forever as well. It's our sure and certain hope. That allows us to have confidence as we face physical death. And even as we say goodbye to those in Christ 
who are taken by death. We do not grieve as if we had no hope. Because for them, to depart means to be with Christ right now. And that's far better. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Now, those who have died who are Christ's don't have the glory yet. They haven't been raised with their glorious bodies yet. They don't have the fullness of resurrection. But death does not have the dread for us that it used to. Jesus has defanged death. He's destroyed the one who had the power of death, the devil, by his resurrection. And one day, his enemies and ours will be put down for all time. And when that day comes, it hasn't come yet, but that day is coming, and on that day we will taunt and mock death because we will be rid of him forever. So brothers and sisters, let's be happy for ourselves. We share the reward of Jesus' suffering, the hope of glory like his. What else has Jesus won for us? He's won himself for us. He's won for us a beautiful, glorious bridegroom. We're the bride. He is the glorious bridegroom. He's working to make us pure and spotless and ready for his appearing. And so we're like the woman in the Song of Solomon. She's longing for the one her soul loves. He's not come to her yet. But one day that wait is going to be over. He says he's gone to prepare a place for us. And he will come again and take us to be with himself. That where he is, we may be also. On that day it will be said, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and they shall see his face. And so we will always be with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let us be happy. We share the promise of being with Jesus forever and ever. But meanwhile, and and lastly, we're still waiting. We've got a job to do while we're still here, while we wait. We're to be proclaiming the good news of his salvation and making disciples of all the nations so that more and more are gathered into his kingdom. We're working to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. We're working to love one another as he loved us. And frankly, those are hard jobs. Those are hard jobs. We have tough stuff to do while we wait. They involve labor, sometimes suffering, stress, grief, and pain. If you're going to live faithfully for your master, the road will be hard. He has promised that it will be. But again, the resurrection gives meaning and purpose to it all. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not In vain. 
Are you suffering today in the Lord's service? Are you in grief? Are you in hard labor? It's not in vain. See, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And when we're raised in glory, when we inherit the kingdom along with Jesus, and we see others there in glory, and we recognize with joy, oh my goodness, I was part of God's plan to get them there. I was part of your story. Then we will know that all the toil and all the labor was not in vain. And on that day, we'll look Jesus full in his face and love him and know him and his love. And with that life and that glory and that union now come to perfect fullness, someone may ask him, Jesus, was it worth it? Was it worth the agony of the cross? And he'll say, oh, yes. It was worth it all. It was worth it all. He's such a good Savior. He's undergone suffering and death at the hands of sinners and on behalf of sinners and come out the other side. He's conqueror. And he's won a harvest of life and glory. It's really true. And he's willing to share it. He's willing to share everything that he's won, all the life, all the glory. He's willing to share it with you. He went to the cross to rescue sinners from sin and death. And you may be rescued also. The question is, will you have him? Will you have Jesus? But you cannot have him and still hold on to your sin. You cannot have him and continue to serve, live serving yourself. You have to let go. You've got to let go of your sin. You've got to let go of your own life. You've got to ask him for the new life, his life of righteousness. Acknowledge him to be the savior that you need. Believe that he died and rose again for you, even for you. Confess him as your Lord and your beloved and your king and commit to obeying him and following him wherever he leads. And if you will do this, if you will have him, then his unbreakable word of promise to you is this. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We share in all the life and all the glory because of his resurrection. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you that Jesus is such a generous Savior. You've exalted him and rewarded him because he humbled himself to death. And we're happy for him. And we're happy for ourselves that he offers all that he is and all that he has. And he offers himself to us. Lord, may we take him, may we serve, may we worship him, and may we one day share in his resurrection. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.